Yeah, man, it's good to see you guys. I've had fun uh, preaching this semester and, and going through the book of 1 Corinthians with you. It's kind of hard to believe we're at the end. Um, how many of you guys, are you ready for finals week? How are you feeling about finals? Yeah? Okay, so, some mixed, mixed reviews out there. Um, man, I, so I'm actually still in school myself. Right, right now I'm doing seminary. Um, so I, I understand the, the grind of stuff finishing. My, my class has just finished last week. But uh, I know that I always appreciated those professors that would like give you a final review thing and let you know, like, hey, we've covered a lot of stuff in class, but this is the stuff that's most important. Like, make sure that you know this stuff for the exam. You guys have professors like that? Hopefully most, I think most of them do that because they don't want you to get bad grades on their tests. Um, and so... Yeah, I, I, I always appreciate those, especially I was a social studies uh, education major when I was in college, and which meant that I had to do like a lot of essay tests. So I especially appreciated it when I had the professor that would be like, okay, yeah, you need to know all this stuff we covered, but especially like hone in on these things because you're going to have to write an essay about it. Um, so kind of what we're, what we're going to do today as we wrap up 1 Corinthians is uh, Paul is going to get to one of the last questions that uh, the Corinthian church was asking him. And as I'm going through that, by the way, if you, don't, if you haven't been with us, if you don't know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about this Corinthian church, I'm talking about Paul, uh, basically what, what we've been studying is a book from the Bible. It's called 1 Corinthians, and it's a letter. Um, the Bible is actually a composition of a lot of different types of documents that were written over the, the course of over a thousand years, uh, many different authors, but all with one central theme. And so here at H2O, we believe that the Bible is the word of God, that God is the one who inspired it, but that he worked through a lot of different human authors in different places and at different times and in different ways to do that. And so what, what we're studying now is, one of the, is part of the Bible, but it's actually just a letter, the same way you're, maybe you send out Christmas cards or whatever. Well, this is a really, really long letter that um, this guy named Paul, who was a preacher of the gospel, wrote to a bunch of people that he introduced to Jesus back in the Greek city of Corinth. And this uh, would have happened back in the first century, okay? Um, so think of like early years AD, probably, I don't know, some, sometime between, maybe around 50 AD or so. So uh, that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about this letter or Paul or, or the Corinthians or anything like that, is we've been reading a letter that he's been writing to this church, and the church had a lot of different questions. And so if you've been with us over the semester, you know how we've been answering a lot of those questions. Uh, First Corinthians has covered a lot of different stuff that's valuable for us to know as Christians. We've talked about uh, divisions in the church. We've talked about uh, sexual immorality. We've talked about... Um, being sensitive to other people's conscience, specifically with how that uh, affected idolatry. We've talked about um, order in the worship service. We've talked about spiritual gifts. There's been all sorts of different uh, questions that the Corinthians had that Paul had been answering one by one. And so now, as we come to the end of the letter, they had questions about one final thing that's really, really important for us as Christians. And so in, in some ways, Today is kind of like that review session that, that, your, uh, that your professor were to give you. It's like, hey, make sure you know this. This is going to be on the test. Like if I was giving you an exam about what I wanted you to come away from with 1 Corinthians, this would be the essay question, like what I'm going to be preaching on this morning, okay? Um, so Paul even says that what he gives them is of first importance, since that's actually what I've titled this sermon 
We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you have your Bible with you, you can open it up there. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's fine. I'm going to have the text on the screen and you can follow along with me. Uh, also, I believe we have some Bibles that are available for you to get for free at the welcome table. So um, if you need a Bible, come talk to us. We'd love to hook you up with one. But I'm going to be referring back a lot to this text. I would love to cover the whole chapter, but 1 Corinthians 15 is a massive chapter. We're not going to have time to do it all this morning, so I'm going to just hone in on the first 11 verses. But before we do that, I want to pray, and let's ask God to work in our hearts this morning. God, you are holy and good, and we love you. And Father, we um, just thank you that we can even call you that, that we can call you our dad, that you've made it possible for us to become your children through faith in Christ. God, we thank you for the gospel, and and, uh, we pray that you would speak that into our hearts and our minds clearly this morning. God, remove all the distractions and fears and worries we have as we're thinking about finals and assignments we might need to get turned in or, or tests that we need to study for, Lord. I pray that all of that would be able to just be put aside for right now and that we would be able to focus in on what you have to say to us this morning. Lord, speak through me, speak through your word, um, and we just pray that you would be lifted up and glorified this morning. And we pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to read verses 1 through 11 together. It says this. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried And that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles. And not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove in vain. But I labored even more than all of them. Yet not not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. All right, there's a a lot that we've looked at in this letter, as I was saying, a lot of different topics uh, that we've covered. But Paul, as he draws near to an end, wants to bring them back to the foundation of the Christian faith, which is the gospel. That word gospel means good news. Uh, This is the central message of Christianity. Paul says that he preached it, that the Corinthians received it, that they stood in it, and that they're saved by it. And so I want to kind of just go through each of those little aspects there and see um, what what we can draw out of those realities. First off, the fact that Paul preached the gospel to the Corinthians. Uh, He was writing to a group of people that were really messed up and had a lot of problems, but God was transforming them and doing an amazing work in their lives. Why? Because somebody cared enough to go and to preach the gospel to them. The Corinthians couldn't have received the gospel if no one had been there to actually tell it to them in the first place. 
And so we talk about this a lot at H2O, but if you're a Christian, you realize there's, you have a, a responsibility and an opportunity and a privilege to be somebody that goes and carries the light of Jesus with you. It's able to share that with other people and thank God that Paul and many others like him have done that because you and I are sitting here worshiping Jesus today because of that. But not only did Paul preach the gospel, but the Corinthians received it. And that's something that is, is worth rejoicing over as well. You know, we're getting close to Christmas time. How many of you guys exchange gifts at Christmas? So, yeah, everybody? Okay. You got some gifts that you want to give? Are any of you guys giving away gifts to other people here in the next couple weeks? Okay. Um, now, so you, you've bought something for that person. And right now, it's probably in your possession, if you haven't given it to them yet. Uh, when does that gift become theirs? I know it's hard to respond in a crowd this size, but the, the gift becomes theirs when they take it. You know, I, I, could, I can buy a gift for you, and I can hope that you like it, and I, can, uh, I could mail it to your house, you know, whatever, I could bring it to your doorstep. I could do all these kind of things to try to give this gift to you, but ultimately, it's never going to become yours unless you choose to receive it. Most of you are going to go home, and you're going to get Christmas presents, you're going to unwrap them, you know, whatever else, and... and if you actually want to experience and enjoy those gifts, you have to choose to actually take it. You know, take it back home with you, whatever you, you may need to do. And so with, with Paul, he brought the gospel to them, but it didn't just fall on deaf ears. It was a gift that was offered, the gift of saying, you are a sinner separated from God, but you can be forgiven and brought back together with him, but you need to receive this. How do you receive it? How do you open this gift and use it? Well, you accept it through faith. You say, yes, I believe that Jesus Christ really is the Son of God, that he really did die on the cross for my sins, that, that I really do need salvation and that he paid the punishment for me. I believe that, and I want to follow him with my life. That's how you receive the gift of salvation. And so the Corinthians did that, and not only did they receive it, but they stood in it. You see, the gospel, first and foremost, is a message that requires a response. That's what it goes back to that receiving, where when the gospel is presented to you, you have to make a decision of whether you're going to take it or not take it. But then after even you make your decision, you have to decide, am I going to stand in this? The gospel is not a gift that kind of has that one-time thrill factor of when you initially get it, and then it kind of wears off. Um, now, I do think that your relationship with Jesus will change over time emotionally as you're following him, but the gospel is the kind of gift that continues to shape you into eternity. Uh, have any of you guys ever been given like a really, really, really huge, amazing, like life-changing type of gift? Anyone? Not many of us. Okay, maybe, maybe here or there someone does. Yeah, most of us have asked, you know, what's the best gift someone's ever given you? I don't know, maybe you think of a toy when you were a kid that you really enjoyed then, but it's not important to you anymore. It wasn't really a, a life-changing gift. Um, well, I think of the, the best gifts that have ever been given to me, uh, they, they would be spiritual ones, but to think of kind of like the best physical gift I've ever been given would probably be from uh, my alma mater, Bowling Green State University. Go Falcons. Um, that... They gave me free college. Um, they, they sent me a letter saying, hey, we want you to come here. We're going to pay for, for everything for you to be able to be here. And uh, that, in many ways, was a life-changing gift. 
Um, what happened with that is it started to shape very much about me. It started to shape the people that I meet. It's, I got involved with H2O there. It's, it's affected me to this day and uh, becoming a person that's had a heart for reaching college students and, and preaching the gospel to them. I met many people that uh, discipled me and impacted me in big ways. It, it was a life-changing gift that was given to me. And with the gospel, it, it's not just a, a one-time use thing, but man, as you ex- accept that, you stand in it. It's, it's something that, enter, that brings you into a relationship with Jesus that you get to live in every single day, and he continues to shape you. And so praise God that the, uh, the Corinthians not only received what Paul had to say initially, but they stood in it, and they wanted to keep following Jesus. And lastly, the Corinthians were saved by the gospel. The gospel is such a great gift because it meets our greatest need which is our need for salvation. And I have to ask at this point, like, what do you think it means to be saved? Because that word gets thrown around a lot. Uh, as a matter of fact, I, I talk to people out on campus all the time, like just random people about spiritual issues and stuff. And uh, a lot of time I'll run into people that, that tell me they're Christians and I'll ask them, you know, who's Jesus? And I get this response, yeah, he's my savior. And then I say, okay, well, what does that mean? What did he save you from? And I get blank stares most of the time. And it's crazy because there's this buzzword of like, we, we, we've been trained to say Jesus is my savior, but we don't even understand what he saved us from. And I think that if that's the case, then, then we have a serious problem with our theology. And if we even understand the gospel, if you've actually even received it, because the, the gospel is, is, it's right to say that Jesus is your savior. He did save us. Paul says here, the gospel is what saved you. But, but first we have to understand what it even means to be saved. And I don't even mean that just in a spiritual sense. Let's just boil this down to kind of a simple worldly illustration of what it means to be saved. All right? First off, to be saved, you have to be in danger. Right? Like, if you were able to just, like, get out of something that wasn't that big of a deal by yourself, like, you didn't save yourself. You just got out of it. You, to, to be saved, you, there has to be some sort of clear, present, and real danger that you need to be delivered from. And so the example that I thought of uh, this past summer, did you guys hear about the story about that uh, group full of soccer players in Thailand that got trapped in the cave? Okay, it was all over the news. If you didn't hear about it, uh, there was this group, it was 12 boys and their soccer coach uh, had gone down into this cave in Thailand and it was the monsoon season. And so uh, they'd gone deep into this cave and these monsoon rains can come in Thailand that just a ton of water comes really, really fast. And it flooded the cave to the point where they were trapped back there in these tunnels. And there was absolutely no way for them to get out by themselves. Like, they were two and a half miles back into the tunnel. And they were in complete, like, have any of you guys ever been in a cave before? If you have, it is darker than dark. Like, you don't know darkness. You don't understand darkness until you've been in a cave. And I know that sounds weird, but seriously, I thought I knew what it meant to be in darkness, and then I went to a cave, and I realized a different definition of darkness. Um, There's just no light there at at all. Obviously, you're underground. Um, And so these boys are are trapped in, in complete, utter darkness, two and a half miles underground, and basically they're just waiting to die, like sitting on a rock that, that's high up. They were trapped in there for 18 days. And uh, if you think about the idea of trying to get out of a two and a half mile flooded tunnel, 
uh, there's just no way that you could do it by yourself. I mean, even if you could swim all that distance, which there were some shallow parts every now and then, uh, so that they wouldn't have to swim 100% of it, but um, e- even if you, you had the strength to be able to make that journey, like, how would you even be able to find your way? <laughs> you have no light at all. You wouldn't know what direction to go. And then even there, the biggest problem is swimming above, uh, on a, the surface is one thing. Swimming in a tunnel is another thing. Like, if a tunnel is completely uh, submerged, you have no ability to come up for air. So as you can see, there was no hope for them in and of themselves. The only way that they were ever going to be able to get out of that tunnel alive was if they were rescued by somebody else. And so that's exactly what happened. There was uh, this massive international relief effort that started to get put on, and this is why it was all over the news. There were over 10,000 people that were involved in this relief effort um, to get this set up. There were over 100 divers that served, and they set up these big lines of uh, like getting ropes set up through these tunnels that they could guide the boys through and like bringing air tanks to them so that they could uh, use the scuba tanks to, to get through the tunnels and all this kind of stuff. And amazingly, uh, after 18 days of being trapped in, in, in darkness in these caves, they were finally delivered. They were rescued by these, this team. And uh, they all made it out safely. There was only one casualty, and it was one of the divers that gave his life, actually, in this process. And so... That really brings me to the, the next part of being saved is not only do you have to be in extreme danger, but you have to be rescued by somebody else. If the boys were able to make it out of there on themselves, you wouldn't say they were saved. You would just congratulate them for somehow finding a way to get out. But they didn't. The only reason they made it out was because they were rescued by an outside party. Now, as I tell you that story, I think it becomes easy for us to understand in reality what it means to be saved. So when we look at our own lives now, how do we apply that to us spiritually? When the Bible speaks about us being saved, what is it getting at? How is it that we are actually in danger? I want you to understand that the scripture speaks as, as sinners, we are in great danger. Like much greater danger than even the, the boys in that cave were in. I mean, you're talking in darkness, no hope, basically waiting for the wrath that is to come. And I don't like this reality any more than you do, but the fact of the matter is God is a holy God and that we've sinned against him. And he's just, he wants to set things right. And he's going to. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. That's, that's what we've earned. Um, 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 9 speaks about the fate of those that um, do, do not know the Lord and what's going to happen to them. And so basically to, to help you understand this passage I'm about to read, uh, Paul's talking to this about, he's writing the Thessalonian church about this group of people that's particularly afflicting them. Uh, but the concept holds true of what he says about those that don't know the Lord. And this is what he says in 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 9. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. As sinners, we have fallen short of God's glory. We are rebels that are in danger of experiencing his wrath. Retribution 
is that this means payback uh, for the wrong that we've done. And unfortunately, I, I, be, because this is such a, an uncomfortable reality, I think it's something we don't talk about that much. But also with that, because we don't talk about it that much, we lose this idea of what it actually means to be saved. Because as I've noticed when I talk to people on campus all the time that, that kind of give me that buzzword, Jesus is their savior, but then can't tell me why, I realize the problem we come back to is they never saw that there were any danger in the first place. And so how can you actually have appreciation for salvation if you haven't actually been delivered from anything? So how can we understand the gospel if we don't understand the justice of God first? You can't understand his mercy without understanding his wrath and his justice. And the reality is God is a perfectly holy and good God. His, his, his wrath and his justice are good things because that's what is going to happen to set the world right. Oftentimes people ask me, if God's good, why does he allow all this evil to go on in the world? And I tell you, God is grieved by the evil that's going on in the world. He hates it. And one day he's going to do away with it, but he's going to do away with it in judgment. And so the reason it's still going on is because he's actually holding off his judgment to give people time to repent. Because he doesn't want people to perish. He wants people to be saved. And that's what brings me to this idea of our rescue. You see, just like those boys in the cave in Thailand, they had no hope in and of themselves. They were never, ever going to be able to get out of that cave. They would have died and rotted there if not for someone else. And same as us, as we rebelled against God, the holy, almighty God, what hope do we have to withstand his wrath? None. Unless someone were to save us from it. And that's exactly what the gospel is. I want to read from Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 9. The apostle Paul wrote this. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. People, this is the gospel. And those verses carry so much more weight when you understand that the wrath of God is real. They don't carry any weight if you don't think that it's real. Because now as you understand that as a sinner that you're justly under God's condemnation, yet he still chose to love you and save you, that makes all the difference in the world, right? And, and notice it's not based upon you being good. That's the other thing that's amazing about this, right? Romans 5, he says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't say, well, let me wait until you get your act together good enough. Then I'll like you enough that maybe I'll come and save you. No, God demonstrates his own love towards this, that while we were yet sinners, while we had no reason for him to do this, that he chose that he would save us from his wrath. And so this is salvation. That Jesus Christ would take our penalty for us and that we'd be saved from the wrath of God through him. So friends, that's what it means to be saved. To understand that you are a sinner, that, that your sin does make you guilty before God, that you are separated, hopeless, and helpless apart from him. But God in his rich love and mercy for you 
decided that he would be both just and loving, and those are both good things. And that he would send his only son to die on the cross for you so that you could be brought back to him. That's what's of first importance. And I'm hoping now that you can see why Paul said this, where he said, hey, you know, all these other things, he, he brings it back to, I delivered to you what was of first importance, because what could be more important? There's a lot of things we're interested in. You know, I know you've got a lot of things in your life that are important and good and we want to learn about. I know that you guys care about your studies and um, your careers and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And all those are good things. You know, they're, they're worthy of attention. But nothing could be more important than this. Because this is what is going to last for eternity. Now, this is why we need to be people that preach the gospel And that can only happen after you've first received it and chosen to stand in it. And by that, you're saved. Now, you might have noticed in 1 Corinthians 15, too, there's one part I haven't covered yet, which says um, that by it you're saved if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, um, some might try to use this as a verse to say that you can lose your salvation. I, I don't think that's what he's getting at here. But I think that what he's saying is, you're saved if you hold fast to the actual gospel, okay? There are a lot of false gospels that go around there, but the one that I preached to you is the real gospel. So if you want to actually be saved, it's through faith in Jesus. There's nothing else that's going to save you. And, and so Paul actually goes on to uh, tell us what that true gospel is here in the next couple of verses. It's very simple. Um, most of us, I, I think, have a tendency, we hear false gospels all the time. And same with the Corinthians, it can be tempting to buy into those. Ah, well, you know what, as long as you're a good person, like in the end, it's all going to be good. That's a false gospel of our day. Um, all roads lead to heaven, false gospel of our day. Uh, that this time, a lot of them were dealing with, oh yeah, trust in Jesus, but also like follow all the Jewish law. False gospel. Hold fast to the actual gospel that Paul preached. And so he reminds them of it right here. In, in the next couple verses. And really, it's quite simple. He says that uh, Christ Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and raised from the dead on the third day according to, our script, according to the scriptures. It's, it's that simple. That's, that's the gospel. Christ died for our sins and he was raised from the dead. And notice too that he says this is all according to the scriptures. Now, I want you to realize here, what was... The scriptures, what are the scriptures when Paul is speaking of them? Now, I, I spoke earlier about how here at HCO we believe that the Bible is the word of God. And that's the Old and New Testament we believe to be the inspired word of God. But re- realize here that Paul is writing the New Testament as he's writing this, okay? So Paul's Bible is the Old Testament. That's the scriptures that he's referring to. And so he's telling us, man... This idea of the gospel, it's not some like new invention of Christianity. Matter of fact, this is something that's been foretold all the way back to that that ancient religion of of Judaism. And and I I want you to see how this is foretold in the scriptures. So just as as Paul said, man, I want you to know these two things, that Christ died for your sins, then he rose again according to the scriptures. I want to show you from the Old Testament scriptures how this is there. And really, this would take a, a, a very broad, like, 
big wide lens look at the Old Testament. I don't have time to take you through everything. But I do at least want to show you this from Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. Um, This is a prophecy about a suffering servant that would save us. It says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Those are words for sins. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That sounds like it's from the New Testament, doesn't it? Like, does that sound like anyone that you know? If you know the story of Jesus, I mean, this is almost freaky, the, the way that this is so perfectly in line with everything that the New Testament teaches about the gospel. And, and notice that when Paul said that, that Christ died, he didn't just say Christ died, he says, for our sins. And that's the same thing that we see in this passage, uh, that, that there was an objective nature to the cross where the wrath of God was actually being poured out on. That's why it was such a violent thing. That's why death was experienced. And, and as I said, if you take a wide lens look at the Old Testament, I'm going to try not to get ahead of myself here. Um, but in, in Genesis, even when we see sin first come into the world, God tells us what the penalty of it is. He says, don't eat from the tree the knowledge of good and evil, for if you do, you will surely die. And so what happens? They eat from the tree, and what happens? Death enters into the world. And so death is is the, the penalty of sin. And so when Jesus dies on the cross, what is he doing? He's paying the penalty for our sin. He's experiencing the curse of that. And and literally, the the thing that that God's allowing is for him to die the death in our place that we deserve. Look look at the wording in in this passage um, where he talks about pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. Everything that, that deserved to be poured out on us was poured out on Jesus. I was trying to explain this to my little nephew last night. He's eight years old. And um, I, I told him, I was like, Hunter, it's, it would be like if you did something really bad that deser- was deserving of a spanking, and I stepped in and I took the spanking for you. Like, this is, this is <laughs> that, that right there, it, that's penal substitutionary atonement, okay? That's a uh, <laughs> nice theological term for you. Um, but, but seriously, this is what's going on is that um, Jesus steps in as our substitute and pays the penalty that we deserve. And through that comes the atonement, forgiveness of sin. And that's why in this, verse, in this passage in Isaiah, it says, by his wounds we are healed. The cross was absolutely necessary. The cross was not something that was just done for God to show how much he loved us or to show that it's worth sacrificing. I've heard all these other things people will say sometimes about the cross. The cross was an objective reality that had to happen. Jesus was sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, pleading with the Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. And what happened? He got arrested and he went to the cross. This had to happen. Our sin had to be paid for because God is a just and holy God. He doesn't just leave sin unpunished. He doesn't just not deal with it. And that's a good thing because we can look forward to heaven as being a place that's actually perfect and free of sin because God finishes the job. When he promises to clean out sin, he does. 
But if our sin has to be punished, then it's either going to be on you or on Jesus. And that's why he provides this substitute. And so see, here's the cool thing too. The gospel doesn't just end with Jesus dying on the cross. It's only half of it. Because it's not just that he paid the penalty for our sins, but that he overcame death. He, he beat sin. He beat the, the penalty that it has on us. The effect that it has on us. And this is why it says that he was buried and raised according to the scriptures. The resurrection is the proof that we no longer have to pay the, the penalty for, for our sin because Jesus already did it for us. Are we going to die physically? Yeah, but eternally, the actual bigger curse of sin has been done away with for those that have put their faith in Christ. And the resurrection is the receipt that proves that. Now, I can't give you an Old Testament passage that is clearly points to uh, the resurrection as I could with, with the, um, the cross. But if you were to read the Old Testament with a gospel lens, uh, you would start to realize that any time that it's talking about triumphing over evil, that has to be referring to the resurrection because the resurrection is when that triumph actually happens. It shows that victory was actually accomplished. And so I could take you to a bunch of different places to, to show this, but uh, I figure given the time of year we are with Christmas and um, also just thinking this one's really cool and it's the first time the gospel's ever preached, we're going to go to Genesis. And uh, in Genesis 3.15, this is, Genesis chapter 3 is when sin comes into the world. It's when Adam and Eve sin against God for the first time after because Satan tempted them uh, to eat from the tree they weren't supposed to. And so God is giving this prophecy. He's cursing the serpent, Satan, and, and he's telling him what's going to happen. He says this, speaking to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Then this is the first time the gospel is preached. Because we see that there's going to be a seed of a woman that comes and is able to defeat this ancient evil enemy that there's, hatred, that there's been hatred between from this time forward. Enmity, hatred between you, between your offspring and hers. But there's this hope coming that although the serpent deceived us and brought uh, immeasurable woe into our lives, there's a hope that one day he's going to be beaten. And not only that, but he's going to be beaten by seed of a woman. And that's why I said this is a fun one to do at Christmas time because what are we celebrating at Christmas? The birth of Jesus, right? Now think about that. Jesus is God in the flesh. But to be born is a very human thing. And so see, God is both fully God, Jesus is fully God and fully man. And, and in his birth, what does that make him? The seed of the woman. You see, the, what, what we celebrate at Christmas, Jesus being born through a woman is actually a very, very important thing. Because from the beginning, this is what's prophesied that this is how it was going to happen. That it was going to be the woman's offspring that would end up doing this. And so what does Jesus do? takes on flesh, born of a woman, he's her seed, and he crushes the serpent on its head. Says he'll bruise you on the heel. And remember, this is a, this is a poetic prophecy, okay? So, so yes, Jesus died and was buried. But when it refers to this bruising on the heel, it's getting at this fact that, yeah, you're going to lay your lick on him. You're going to do some damage. But in the end, it's going to be like a bruise because he's going to rise again. 
ultimately the victory is going to belong to him. He's going to crush your head. And this is what happens at the resurrection. Now, I'm not saying that if you were to read Genesis 3, you would automatically come up with that all on your own. Uh, What I'm saying is that as history is unfolded and as the gospel has been revealed to us, we can look back and see, oh my goodness, look look at how this is being painted for us throughout history. Look at how the scriptures were testifying to this. I would have loved to be there with Jesus uh, after the resurrection when he was walking with those two dudes on the road to Emmaus and just telling them all these places that the scripture was pointing to him. So man, we, we can rejoice in the fact that the seed of the woman has triumphed over the serpent. That triumph has begun and one day it will be completely finished, which I'm going to talk about at the end of my sermon. So the scriptures bear witness to this simple gospel. That Jesus died for our sins and he rose from the dead. But not only do they bear witness, but also there are a lot of people that do. And that was the next thing that Paul got into is that like he went into this and he appeared to. And you see all these different people he talks about that he uh, appeared to. Uh, He appeared to Cephas, whose name was Peter, the same guy. Uh, He appeared to the 12 disciples. He appeared to more than 500 people at one time. James, all the apostles, Paul, all these people are saying, yeah, we saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. And, and this is a, a really, really significant thing because one of the things that, that gives me a lot of faith in, in believing in the resurrection, believing in Christianity, is that there's no explanation for how it, it got off the ground in the first place unless all of these people actually saw Jesus rise from the dead. You think about it, like our story is kind of crazy, isn't it? Like we're saying, oh yeah, God became a man and then he died on the cross, but he rose from the dead. And through that, we can have salvation and be united with God. It's like, you're used to that probably because you grew up hearing it or whatever. But when you step back and think about it, that's kind of a crazy story. And if you think that the resurrection is just a crazy idea for like modern, uh, more uh, humanist thinkers, uh, they laughed at Paul even in Athens in Acts 17 when he preached about the resurrection. I mean, this has always been an idea that, that's somewhat laughable, yet at the same time, it's true. And so here's, here's the thing. Um, with this, all of these people go and witness and testify, yeah, Jesus actually rose from the dead. And, and I think that unless Jesus actually appeared to all these people, there's no way that Christianity would have gotten off the ground. I mean, look at all these people that Jesus appeared to. Uh, he appeared to Peter. That was the guy that denied him three times. It shows God's grace that he would appear to him. He appeared to the 12. The 12 would go on and they would preach Christianity at at great cost. They all ended up getting killed except for John, uh, who ended up going into exile. And they died some really brutal deaths, uh, including being crucified, being sawn in two, being burned alive. Uh, Peter was actually even crucified upside down because he didn't want to be crucified in the same way as Jesus. He thought he wasn't worthy. Uh, Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at one time. This isn't uh, recorded in the scripture, but that doesn't mean, uh, like we don't have it in the gospel, it's recorded here in the scripture, Um, but that doesn't mean that it didn't happen. John actually at the end of his gospel says that uh, if he wrote down everything that Jesus did, he couldn't fit in all the books in all the world. So they had to be selective in what they included. But Paul is saying, hey, yeah, Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at one time. Oh, and by the way, most of them are still alive. So if you want to, if you don't believe me, just go ask them. They'll tell you what they saw. He appeared to James. Now, there are a lot of James in the Bible. This is most likely the brother of Jesus, though. And how many of you guys here have siblings? Yeah? Okay, most of you do. Uh, 
what would it take for you to start thinking that your sibling was God and rose from the dead? Like, that would be pretty hard, right? Because you've grown up with them and you've seen all their weaknesses and you know, everything else. But yet, here we have James that has become a Christian and is saying, yeah, Jesus appeared to me. He ended up becoming a pillar of the church. I don't know how that happens unless Jesus actually appeared to him after his, his death. He appeared to all the apostles. So, I mean, obviously this includes the 12. It might include some other people that went around preaching the gospel as well. Once again, guys that died uh, for the sake of, of this message. And I have to ask you even like, who would die for something that they know is a lie? All right, people will die for things that, that they think are true, but are actually lies. Um, that's just because they've been deceived, right? So I would even say like the terrorists on 9-11, they died for what they believed in, but they thought that it was true. With, with these guys that are going around saying, hey, we saw Jesus rise from the dead, nobody deceived them. Like they're the, the start of the message. So either they saw it or they didn't. They knew if they were lying. So for them to be willing to go and die, for something that they knew was a lie is almost incomprehensible. Uh, maybe if one of them was insane, they'd be willing to do that. But it wasn't just one. It was, it was all 12. And, and there were many others too. I mean, the, the gospel spread like wildfire actually throughout um, the first century Roman Empire. By the way, it, it, it thrived under the most inexplicable circumstances. Christianity was heavily persecuted for its first 300 years. It wasn't until about, I think it was 325 that Constantine became emperor of Rome, right around that area, um, when he, he became a Christian and Christianity moved from being a persecuted religion to a favored religion in the Roman Empire. So that means about 300 years. That's longer than the United States has been around, by the way, that Christians, their existence was um, being persecuted, jailed, killed, fed to lions, sometimes even put on stakes and used as human torches. Uh, These were all things that were happening to Christians in the Roman Empire, and yet somehow the gospel continued to thrive. How? How could that happen? Unless these people were fully convinced that they had actually seen Jesus rise from the dead. How could it happen if miracles didn't actually accompany the preaching of the apostles? I don't see how it could. How could it happen if he didn't appear to those 500 people? There's just not anything to gain in it for them if it's not true. And I've never talked to somebody that that can give me a good explanation outside of the resurrection actually happening for how Christianity gets off of the ground in the first place. You can look at the spread of any other religion. Uh, it, It comes from people that are, usually someone says, hey, I got this vision from God. You can't either confirm it or not confirm it. And people just kind of go around spreading it. Uh, Christianity spread under, first off, it wasn't even Jesus that was saying it. It was all these people saying, we've seen Jesus rise from the dead. And it was a message that people tried very, very hard to stop. And for whatever reason, it continued to spread and thrive and grow. I don't know how it happens if the resurrection didn't take place. I don't know how you get through 300 years of persecution growing. I told you about Constantine. Um, well, uh, even by the, uh, in the third century, so in the 200s, there's estimates that say about 40% of the Roman Empire had become Christians by that point. I, I just don't get God had to be behind this. There's just no other way that it could have happened. And so all these people say, hey, we've seen Jesus and we're not going to shut up about him. 
And they lived fearlessly, and, and many, many, many of them died for preaching that message. But the thing is, how is it that they were able to do this without any fear? Well, the answer is they put their faith in the resurrection. You see, the very thing that they were preaching about the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the very thing that gave them the boldness and power to be able to go and preach this this message even if they would lose their life. Why? Because they knew that Jesus is the first fruits of our resurrection. That term first fruits just means the beginning of the harvest. The resurrection wasn't just Jesus, okay? Jesus resurrected, but really in doing so, he was actually a foreshadowing of what's to happen for the rest of us that put our faith in him. And that's really what a lot of the rest of the chapter has that I'm not going to get, have time to get into detail with, but that belief, that, that knowledge that this life is not all we have allowed them to live with boldness and fervor because they knew, you know what? Even if you want to kill me, you want to put me in jail, you want to take everything that I have, so what? It's just for a short period of time. It's just for this life. And I have much more that I'm living for than this life. They preached the resurrection of Jesus and they were able to do so without fear because they believed in their own resurrection. This is a central theme to Christianity, as I was saying. I, the terminology I used a couple weeks ago about open hand and closed hand, this, this issue of the resurrection is as closed hand as it gets. I mean, we're talking core, core gospel, and it affects everything about you. And so I want to just, as I kind of move towards closing, I want to uh, draw out some of the implications of this. Just like the reality of the resurrection of Christ and of our own resurrection, that even though we will die, we'll one day be raised again to life, to live with, with God for eternity. What are uh, the implications? How do we need to, to live that out? And I'm going to select some verses from the rest of this massive, beautiful chapter uh, to illustrate some of these things. So the, the first thing that I would say in light of everything we've learned this morning is do not neglect the resurrection. Um, it, it, it bothers me sometimes when I hear people, and I think that they're good in intentions sometimes, but want to make Christianity all about this life. And we would be wrong to neglect this life and live as Christians. We should be making this world a better place. Christians should be salt and light. We should have a huge impact on helping the poor, uh, fixing broken uh, systems of injustice, all sorts of things. Yes, that needs to be a huge part of what we are. But that can't be the only thing. Christianity is very much also about looking forward to the future and realizing that, that Jesus is preparing a home for us and that this world is, is, is not ultimately our home. And, and Paul makes this as clear as can be. I'm going to read from verses 12 to 19 just to realize if you are trying without realizing the reality of the resurrection, you're not living as a Christian. Like you, you don't believe the gospel. So here's 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 19. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses of God because we have testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised." For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ, 
in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Man, the, 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 don't sleep on the resurrection. <laughs> he even uses that term in there, that idea of falling asleep. I love, he's talking about dead people there. Um, but, but he uses that term, falling asleep. Why? Because he realizes they're going to rise again. So it's almost more like sleep than it is like death. The next thing I would say is, is fear the Lord, not the world. When I say fear the Lord, I mean it in like the good, like reverent type fear, not like, oh my goodness, I think he hates me kind of a thing. Um, but in the, man, like I realize that God is holy and powerful and awesome and that he is going to judge the earth like I was talking about before. He is king. And one day he's going to put all things under his feet. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 25 says, Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God and to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. God will put all of his enemies under his feet. And may we be found as his children and his friends when he returns and not as his enemies. And the beautiful thing is he's made that possible by offering us the gift of peace through the gospel. I would also say that you need to get ready for a makeover. Extreme body makeover is going to be happening. Um, I, I think that sometimes we have this misunderstanding of what's going to happen after death. And you think you're just going to like float around as a spirit forever. Um, but there's actually going to be a resurrection of your, your body. And it's going to be changed. It's going to be a different kind of body. I don't know every detail about it. Um, but Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 44. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. We are going to be people that get new resurrection bodies, and they're not going to have the curse of sin and death the way that we experience with these ones that decay and eventually are going to die. Merry Christmas. Um, but you know what's happening. But here's the thing. The, the resurrection gives us hope that this body isn't the last. It's, it's not the end. And then finally, the last thing I would say is we need to hold on to hope for what is coming. This life can be full of a lot of pain and darkness and hardship. I know that we're all familiar with that. Some of us more than others. Death still has a sting right now. It really does. Um, it's hard when we lose loved ones. It's hard when we go through loss. It's hard when we uh, see all of the injustices and, and pain and everything else that goes on in this world. I was just at a funeral last week um, for a friend of mine. <clears throat> His brother was, I think he was 20 years old and, and committed suicide. And uh, it's in those times, you know, you walk in there and, and you see people grieving and you feel that sting of death. The good news that we have is that one day that sting is going to be gone. That sting is going to be gone and that God is inviting us not just to leave the sting of death, but get to get to experience eternal life in his presence. He loves you enough not just to save you, but to invite you into his presence for eternity. Man, that he's got to like you. Like he's got to care about you a lot to do that, honestly. <laughs> like, could you imagine inviting someone into your presence for eternity? Most of us would get sick of each other by then. <laughs> God loves you enough. He says, I want you to be my child. I want you, I'm making a home for you. I want you to move in with me. I want you to be there forever. So I want to read this last passage 
just because I think it's one of the most triumphant passages in the Bible. As, as Paul closes 1 Corinthians 15, he says this in verses 50 through 58. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and the mortal will have put on the immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Man, Paul's helping us see here. Jesus has won the victory. We just have to keep our eyes on it. What's sown... He said that, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Death is a doorway in a lot of ways. You can't enter into the kingdom of God in this, this body that you have. So you're either going to have to die or you're going to be changed in the twinkling of an eye when Jesus comes back. And while death is the curse of sin, and, and yes, it has its sting right now, its days are numbered. Jesus has crushed that serpent's head. And we're going to realize the full extent of that in the days to come. So the worship band can come back down, and uh, I'm going to pray. But as I do this, I want to uh, encourage you to live in light of the gospel. Think back to the beginning when Paul talked about, I preached it, you received it, you stood in it, and you're saved by it. I want you to think about where you are. First off, have you received the gospel? If you want this gift... It's, it's a, a gift that has to be received. Maybe that's a choice that you need to make today. If that's something that you want to do, please talk to me. I'll be up there at the top after service. I would love to talk to you about receiving the gift of salvation. If you've received it, then stand in it. Remember that this is what you're saved by. Live every day. Live your life that way. And preach it. Tell others this news as well. We serve a great and awesome God, and we're going to get to worship him now. So let's pray. Um, God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you for the resurrection, uh, for the, the first fruits, the, the resurrection of Christ, and, and also for the resurrection that we look forward to that's going to be our own. God, we thank you that death is not going to have the final word. Uh, we thank you that you are king and that you are one day, you're going to put all your enemies under your feet. And God, we thank you that we don't have to be enemies of yours because you've made a way of peace for us at the cross. God, thank you for saving us. We pray that you would be glorified in our worship today. We love you and pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen.